0: Hey everyone, Ray here. Here is part three of our interview with James Schoen about the history of Taiwan during the Cold War.
1: A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev teared
2: down this. I dug up an article from the 6th of December 1948 by Harold Ikes, who had been the Secretary of the Interior for about 13 years just prior to this, from 33 to 46, was responsible for implementing a lot of Roosevelt's New Deal, ran Mm -hmm. the... Public Works Administration and and, and the environmental efforts and that kind of stuff that was part of the New Deal. Anyway, he wrote an article about Taiwan where he said there was supposedly this public opinion poll held in Taiwan in 1946 that suggested that people there would prefer living under US rule, then second preference would be Japanese, and then third preference Chinese. But he said, Mm. but I've got contacts on the island, American contacts, who tell me that the poll was only of 300 elites and that it was rigged (laughs) like the uh, 2020 US Mm. election. And and the US media ran with it like it was a legit survey of the people. He pointed out that the island... Yes, exactly. He pointed out that the island was one of the most important economic and security outposts for Japan during the decades that they controlled it and that the US now wanted to control it. He wrote, the order of preference, according to my American informant, is in fact first Chinese rule, then Japanese and third place American. The idea state, according to the same source, is a purely synthetic figurine fashioned by American big brass and big money, aided and abetted by wealthy Chinese who were collaborators with the warlords of Japan who hoped to wrest from China this rich land for commercial exploitation and for use as a military base. Now, I, I found that fascinating because, A he's an American saying this, B, former Secretary of the Interior saying this, C, he's a fucking Democrat saying this while Truman is uh, in power, um, he's uh, basically saying, yeah, this is all bullshit and uh, we're just trying to take over the island so we can use it as a economic and military
1: base. Yeah. Um, so, there you go. That was his view in nine, at the end of 1948. Well, those plans get put into effect in 1949. So, in January, the National Security Council produces uh, like a report draft, on a draft report on Taiwan, going this is how it is there and they would prefer us to take over and give them trusteeship and maybe they'll have their own referendum and get independence later. In September or October, the source is a bit vague. The U.S. had, by that stage, agreed to take the freedom of Taiwan to the UN and put it before them. Then, either later that month or the following month, in October, the Gorman flee Taiwan. To, uh, sorry, flee China to Taiwan. Right. And the U.S. just right. like, oh, well, there goes our plans to take the island. <laughs> and and when they fled, it was quite interesting because they, they'd obviously planned this, and a lot of people had started moving ahead of the time, but in October is when the mass migration went. And you have 2 right. million mainlanders with all their assets, plus things like, let's just empty the National Palace Museum and take everything with us. Wow. And then arriving in Taiwan, they built a new National Palace Museum and put it all there. And so you actually have quite a number of Chinese tourists before COVID who would come here just to go to places like the National Palace Museum to see all the things from their own history. You know, it's a bit well, like… It was- half the people around the world having to go to Europe to see their own treasures and their museums.
0: Right. It was never returned. No. It and was- the
1: Greeks having to go to England to see their treasures. Uh- yeah, exactly. Right. The Greeks and the Egyptians and, you know, whoever else. <laughs> yeah. Absolute madness. Anyway, and then December of that year, they officially moved the capital of the now Republic of China, even though they're the second Republic of China, right. from Nanjing to Taipei. Now what's
2: interesting and I read that the sorry, I read that the population of Taiwan before the uh, the KMT moved there was about six million, and they brought another two million. Do those numbers sound right?
1: It could be. I, I actually have more information on the current numbers as opposed to the the numbers at that time. Uh, I'd have to look that up, but that that could very well be true. I mean, right now, about ninety seven percent of the population is of Han ethnicity, mm-hmm. and about. Two and a half percent is Indigenous. Right. Oh, wow. So they're quite that, outnumbered in that regard. About the, as,
2: about the same as Australia. You're, you know, uh, non-Indigenous. I think our Indigenous population is about one, one and a half percent.
1: Well, I th- wow. You know, I'm just trying to think now. There's about 23 and a half million people in Taiwan at present. Yeah, Jesus. That's almost the same as Australia as
2: well. Australia's population is about twenty-seven million. (laughs) We have a landmass
1: the size of the uh, continental United States. (laughs) They didn't really clear the mountains. They have large people, and I'm sorry, they have large cities, and they have very large people.
0: No, they've got (laughs) giants. (laughs) Yes. Sorry. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Sorry. They clear the mountains just by sweeping their hand across them.
0: How do you squeeze in two more million people is uh, an
2: well, interesting exercise.
1: Simple. You, you take anyone who's still indigenous and you chase them up into the mountains or onto the east coast where they oh. have to deal with more earthquakes and more flooding from typhoons. And you take the gotcha. flatter plains of the western side of the island. Take the good lands, yeah.
2: And say thank you. What your people did sorry, to
1: sorry. the uh, Native
2: Americans, Ray, just chased yeah. them, yeah, yeah. Chased them uh, out of the good lands. Well,
0: I think it would be more accurate to say that that's kind of like what three fourths of me did to the one fourth of me, but we don't have to go into that now. I did want to ask real quick so when Chiang Kai shek comes, because as far as I know, martial law was declared in May of 1949 before he gets there. I'm assuming he's going to keep that in place because it's going to make his life of leadership and organizing this um, island and all of its resources to one day go back on the mainland and hopefully win this war. It's going going to make that a lot easier. So I'm assuming the martial law is not going anywhere anytime soon.
1: No, uh, there are actually two conflicting reports on this. One says that in 1947, when Chen Yi declared Mm -hmm. martial law, it stayed. Others say that it went away and then was put back in 1949. But either way, it was in place then, and it didn't end until 1987. They didn't have their first open elections until
0: 1996. Uh, insecure much? But uh, yeah, okay. But oh, shek has gotta have. these were the yeah.
2: these were the good guys, right? The that good The US, guys. The US yeah. was supporting against the bad guys. Just no, no. To, the, these are to the, be the bad dollars. guys,
1: <laughs> but they're our bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always the way. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, love one, America. One thing that's. Important and we're going to get back to later is when the Kuomintang fled to Taiwan, they left two military divisions on the mainland, in Yunnan Province. Oh, I, obviously, I assume they're there to work behind enemy lines, guerrilla warfare, that kind of thing, right. disrupt what was going on with the CCP trying to reunite the rest of the old empire. But they come into the picture a bit late, a bit later, when we talk about Chiang Kai-shek's son. All right. Well, the White Terror, although it started in 1947, we really mm-hmm. looked at it from 1949 onwards. But to do that, we have to first look at Shang Kai-shek's son, Shang Jingguo. Mm-hmm. Now, um, a note on language again before we start. <laughs> Shang Kai-shek isn't his real name. Of course not. Uh, in, I don't know if it's still customary today, but traditionally in Chinese, when you're born, you don't get given your name straight away. You get given a little pet name by your family, which is called your milk name. Right. Then when you're a bit older, maybe once your personality is developed or something, they give you a name which you use when you go to school. And that's your daming, your big name. And it's mm. the name that your teachers and everyone calls you at school. And then you also have another name. I think it's called... Um, a courtesy name, which is usually called, your peers and people younger than you call you by that name. Uh, so people can have multiple names. Now, <clears throat> people can also change their names. So this guy actually changed his name uh, to Xiang Zhong, uh, Zhong Zhen. and the reason he changed his name to Zhong Zhen is because Zhongshan, very similar, Zhongshan is Central Mountain. Jongshan mm-hmm. was the proper name or the customary, uh, the courtesy name of Sun Yat-sen. So he changed his name to be closer to Sun Yat-sen oh. to show that he was, you know, following his guidelines and following his leadership and setting himself up to be the second in command to take over after Sun Yat-sen. Okay. But then there was a magazine in Japan written in Chinese for Chinese students there who were going there to study war because that was the the biggest military um, training. It had the most uh, prestigious military training in that part of the world. Okay. So people would go there to learn about war. And in that one, he wrote under a pseudonym, which was Jiang Jie Shi, which is, some people now refer to him as Jiang Jie Shi, and other people refer to him as uh, Jiang Zhongzheng. Now, most of that literature was then being brought across to places like Canton and read in Cantonese so Jiang Jie changed into Cantonese is Shang Kai-shek except he didn't speak Cantonese Mm. so in the West we know him by the name in a language he doesn't speak which is kind of fun (laughs) sounds about right yeah sounds about right (laughs) (laughs) par for the course so he has uh, one biological son, and that is Xiang Jingguo. Uh, it's written Qing Ko, but the K is a G sound, so Jingguo.
0: Mm.
1: And here again, the records seem to be weird because they say that his his mother, Shan Kai Shek, married uh, was engaged to her when he was fourteen. But according to the record, the one record, she's five years younger than her. But according to the other record, they were engaged when he was 14 and she was 17, which makes her three years older than him, not five years younger. Right. And I, I can't seem to work out what the hell is going on here, unless it means they were engaged when she was 14. And then when she was 17 is when she got pregnant. Anyway, her, uh, she was from... Uh, Some small little village, she was illiterate. And so later on, when he divorces her, she disappears from historical record. So we don't know that much about her. Mm. But again, we go back to the age. They speak about the two of them becoming very distant because of Shang's connection with the triads, which she doesn't like.
0: Right.
1: But if they were married when she was 17, then that time would have only been like a couple of months. You can't really get distant from each other in a couple of months. No, i have tried. If it was when she was 14 and then when she was 17, she was pregnant, then there's a three-year split, which makes more sense for the timeline. Anyway,
0: mm-hmm.
1: times aside, <clears throat> he married her and, and then prompted to ignore her. And eventually his mother, because he was also – going off to Japan to study military things and then come back and then go back to Japan and come back. And on one of his visits back, his mother mm. gets his wife goes to Shanghai and insists that she, that he makes her pregnant. And, um, I, I've actually seen this happen a few times with, uh, particularly Chinese families. I, I mean, I, I assume it, it must happen in other cultures as well, but they have the idea of, Oh, well, our, our marriage is failing. How do we fix it? Let's have a child. Then we'll be locked together.
2: Ray's been trying to get me to have a child with him for years to keep our marriage together. and Yeah. He keeps saying right. if he sticks it in enough times, it'll right. work. He's He read that somewhere, but uh, I don't know, man. I'm starting, well, to, the, starting to get suspicious. Yeah.
0: The irony is that, like Chiang Kai-shek, uh, Cam's uh, sexually transmitted disease is preventing any kind of pregnancy, so <laughs> it's just a waste of time. I'm sorry. Please continue, James. <laughs>
1: All ah, right. right. That's I will try and do a, <clears throat> a, a brief okay. summary of, of Shang Jingguo's life. So he was born in 1910. And when he was 11 years old, his father divorces his mother, mm-hmm. Fumei, and she goes off back to her village. And he, me, uh, me, he remarries. He marries a girl who's only 14 years old. Uh, her name was Chen Chiyu, uh, often nicknamed Jenny. Sure. So let's just say Jenny. And she is, at that point, only about three and a half, four years older than his son. Mm. Now, of course, she promptly, from Shankai Kai-shek, gets syphilis. <coughs> and the treatment for it makes her infertile. Oh, my God. Anyway, about two years later, uh, Jing Guo goes to live with her because his father has put him up at a school in Shanghai. And I don't know if this is just because that's where he's based or if he's trying to get her- him away from his old mother. Right. But he then is living with his stepmother, who's four years older than him. Anyway, he doesn't stay there terribly long. He ends up finishing his schooling in Beijing, which is a much more communist-centered area. And he has communist teachers. Mm-hmm. So he gets inspired by them. And uh, according to Jay Taylor, who wrote the book The Generalissimo's Son, mm-hmm. uh, Jingguo saw himself as a progressive revolutionary. And in 1925 in Moscow, the Sun Yat-sen University of the Toilers of China was opened. And he's like, oh, dad, dad, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. And jingo Goh, uh, uh, um kai Chek needed a lot of persuasion because he saw his son as, and I quote, a block of wood. <laughs> now, that doesn't actually mean, you know, you're just a thick head. Right, still. Uh, I'll, I'll explain it using a little comic that I saw. Mm-hmm. There is a ma- who is a piece of wood with arms and legs leading her son or or daughter, who's like a little branch from a tree, you know, the little branches sticking off and little leaves also with arms and legs into a classroom. And in the classroom, the teacher is an ax. Oh, and the children are all perfectly cut and shaped pieces of wood.
0: They're molded.
1: cut. You you look at this in the West and you go, Ooh, um, (laughs) that's terrible. You go to this place, they, Cut off anything that's creative or interesting about you and standardize you into just a part. Yeah. But mm. you show that to, now. Let's all
2: now, yeah. now let's let's all stand class, put our hands <laughs> on our
1: hearts, and recite the pledge of allegiance <laughs> every morning for the rest of our lives. I promise to be grainy and just the right way. Yeah. But if mm. if you show that to someone in certain parts of Asia, certain Asian cultures, they go, "Oh, that's absolutely correct. You have to train them to be exactly what they should be." Right. So when he calls his son a block of wood, he's saying, tabula rasa, you're just a blank slate. Mm-hmm. If I send you over there, because at the moment you haven't shown to think the way I do, they go and infect you with their own thoughts. Right. So he was worried about sending it. But eventually he agreed and his son set off from Shanghai by ship to go to Russia, where he was promptly renamed Nikolai Vladimirovich Elisaroy. Oh,
0: that's not much better.
1: So now he's got this nice long Russian name as well, right? And yeah, he he joins this play. You know, they they live in a a boarding establishment at the university. And the following year, in I think January or February, very early in the year, they're joined by another student, a solidly built boy who's you know very lively and had just been spending time in Paris. Mm. His name was Deng Xiaoping, who I'm sure you're going to get into at some point in the future. Yeah. And he was nick- nicknamed Little Cannon. <laughs> anyway, that same year, <laughs> Zhang War decides, you know what, I'm going to get married. And I think he was 16 at the time. Right. And he married a girl who was the daughter of a Chinese warlord. Wow, Obviously also over there studying. Right. All right. So That's all going swimmingly until the following year, April, when his father betrays the Shanghai communists and using the Green Gang, the triads in Shanghai, he kills them all. Jingle's like, right? I'm in the middle of a communist country. My dad's just gone anti-communist, so he had to denounce his father publicly right. and in writing, which was then circulated in many Soviet newspapers. He had been pro-Trotskyite, and then Stalin ousted them. Mm-hmm. So he had to abruptly backpedal and go, no, 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 the Trotskyites—they're—they're they're idiots. <laughs> uh, I never believed in that nonsense. Oh my goodness! Somebody hide all the ice picks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah his, his father then goes through a nice rigorous routine of getting rid of his wife and marrying another one um
0: oh my goodness
1: and uh that's yeah it's still 1927 and then uh the in december of that year is when he marries the new wife Mm-hmm. was and in that, that yeah,
0: I'm just real quick. Was um, was uh, Stalin holding this young man mm, pseudo hostage? He, it's not like he could have said, "You know what? It's getting a little dicey around here. I think I better leave and go home." I'm assuming he would not have been not allowed
1: just yet. Okay, right. I mean, I think they're watching him, right. but he's still given his freedom. Uh, okay. He's selected for military training in Leningrad. Mm-hmm. So let's keep you closer to home. Right. He graduates three years later, 1930, top of his class he's like, okay, I want to join the Red Army. And they're like, no, we're sending you to Moscow. You're going to study engineering. Mm. So, he, okay, he went there. But by the following year, the relations between Stalin and Chiang shek had deteriorated. Right. So, they're like, okay, Jing is now our hostage.
0: Oh, gotcha.
1: And now, again, the stories differ. One says he was sent to work on a collective farm. The other says he was sent to work in a steel factory in the Ural Mountains. I have no idea why these accounts differ so much. Right. I've I've got to get to the bottom of this before I get to this point in my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. It's, it's just confusing as hell. Right. Now, for some reason now, he marries again. But there's no indication of what happened with the first wife.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Anyway, he, he marries a girl who's 17. Now, by this stage, he's 25. So there's a bit of a difference between them. Mm-hmm. Not quite as much of a difference as between his father and some of his wives. Uh, But he marries someone who has a Russian name. Now, I I think she was Russian. I don't think she was Chinese with a Russian name. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her name was Faina, or Faina Epacheva-Valaleva. And by the end of that same year, they had a son Mm. called Aylian. Uh, And that was 1935. So that was after being kept in that factory for four years. Anyway, two years later, the relations had started improving between Stalin and Chiang Kai-shek. So he, the family gets sent back to China. And he's like, okay, dad, I'm ready to prove myself. Put me in charge of something. And his dad's like, no, you've been away too long. It's time for you to relearn being Chinese. Right. So for a year, he has to relearn and, and rework on writing Chinese characters, speaking the Chinese language and... Um what's the word they use? when you get fully stuck into something, you're not embedding or meshing in a hmm. enveloping whatever himself in Chinese culture and the old classical works. Right. It'll be like someone going back to England, like, all right, you're gonna have a year of reading Shakespeare, that kind of thing. Yeah. And afterwards he was placed in a mid-level management position and his dad could watch him as he trained the youth corps. Mm-hmm. And he worked ruthlessly and efficiently. And managed to get his father's trust. <clears throat> and doing these various positions, he saw at the end of the war with Japan. So his father was like, okay, I think I can trust you now. So after Chen Yi messed everything up on the mainland, it's now time, uh, oh yeah, on, on the island of mm-hmm. Taiwan, okay. it's time to fix this. And I'm going to do so by putting you in charge there. Oh, good. Most importantly,
0: yeah.
1: I want you to clean up the corrupt mess that Chen Yi li- left specifically looking at the intelligence agencies. Right. Now, there were two major intelligence agencies, the Central Bureau of Investigation and Statistics and the Military Bureau of Investigation and Statistics. And there was apparently quite a rivalry between them, uh, similar to what I've heard between the CIA and FBI. They're on the same side, Uh, but they butt heads occasionally. Turf war, yeah. Yeah, so he's like, okay, I'm going to take the, administ- the, uh, the top level of both of these and purge them. Then I'm going to push them together and make a single group. And again, these long, crazy names.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The reference group of the presidential palace's confidential office. And then from that group, he's like, okay, I'm now going to create five subgroups. Small little groups that operate for us and report back to us. Mm. And They they didn't just operate in Taiwan. They were operating in China and in the USA and anywhere where there's a significant expatriate Chinese community Mm. to try and get them on board with the Chinese way of thinking, with the the Kuomintang Chinese way of thinking. In fact, it's this group that gets involved in lobbying and causing huge political um, stirrings in the USA to try and constantly get the USA to support Taiwan. Mm. and in fact it it eventually gets taiwan put on a list america has this very important list of countries that are ostensibly allies but they need to be watched (laughs) because we don't trust them (laughs) taiwan wasn't just put on that list that list was created for taiwan they were the first name on that list wow yeah anyway Within this, he also has the Taiwan Garrison Command, which is essentially his secret police. And it's the workings of the secret police that become known as the White Terror, oh, which we, you alluded to at the beginning. Right. So he's running these network of intelligence agencies. This proves that he's A, trustworthy, B, he's got all the power, and C, he's perfectly positioned to take over from daddy. Wow. Yeah. Things are looking good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Taiwan is trying to show, oh, we're trying to be de- democratic. We have elections uh, only at the district level, and all opposition parties are banned, so you have to run as an independent who has no money. Right. Oh, and if you actually do have a chance of changing anything, the secret police will find out who you are and get rid of you. Right. Jeez. But, hey, we have a sort of democracy. <laughs> Baby steps. Baby steps, yeah. yeah. The, the white terror actually continues all the way into the 1980s. So it's an ongoing thing. It's not just at this point in time now. Right. But during that time, they arrested up to 90,000 people. Jeez. And about half of them were executed. Jesus. So, yeah. Some going to trial, some military trial, some not. Yeah. Anyway, lots of nonsense. Well,
2: yeah, I, I guess the question in my mind as I was preparing mm-hmm. for this is after the Kuomintang moved to Taiwan, why didn't Mao invade and just he'd, he'd push them out of the country? Why didn't he just pop over, kill them all and uh, take back Taiwan? Now, for my understanding, I was reading a book um called The Chinese Invasion Threat by Ian Easton, where he talked a little bit about his perspective on this history. He said the first problem was that the CCP, while they had a better army than the KMT, they had very little at the time in the way of naval or air power. So to get across to the island and be able to take it successfully was going to take some building up. Mm. They did have plans to build up, uh, the ability to send an invasion army across the Taiwan Strait, mostly involving purchasing ships and planes from the Soviet Union. First, He tried to get Stalin to uh, invade for him. Stalin was like, uh, not right now, thanks, I've got other things on my mind. Um, but then they had financial pressures and slow delivery of equipment from the Soviet Union, so the invasion date got pushed back to the summer of 1951. But uh, and the other thing that Mao had going for him at the time was a spy ring that he had that had penetrated the KMD's uh, military command structure. But uh, that got busted in 1950 by the KMT. They were all arrested and executed. Mm. So he lost that. But he was still planning on invading. But, of course, when the Korean War broke out, And the U.S. and the U.N. forces were pushing up the north. He had to deal with that. And, of course, we then see the U.S. all of a sudden decide that Taiwan was way more important to them than it had been perceived previously. And they had a massive presence in the region, so it was uh, unlikely that he was going to be able to just pop over to Taiwan without anyone noticing. And um, it's pretty much remained that way ever since.
1: Yeah, I think five or six months before the Korean War broke out, Truman had sort of washed his hands and said, look, we've got – Taiwan can do its own thing. We, we've had enough of you. Right. Get lost.
0: Right.
1: And then the Korean War broke out, and they're like, oh, well, now we're in trouble. We've got to deal with this. And under the cover of this, China might use it to invade Taiwan. But just as likely, right. the Kuomintang might use it to attack China which they're going to lose. I mean, Chiang Kai-shek had this weird idea that if I arrive there and stamp my feet, you know, similar to other people in history, Poppy. the people will rise up to overthrow <laughs> the corruption of, ca- of um, communism because they know it's horrible. Right. Why they hadn't mm. done that when they were being kicked out of the country, mm. who knows? But <laughs> <laughs> mm, mm. Obviously he thinks if we get the, involved, the- Taiwan's at risk. America will have to get involved because they don't want to lose Taiwan as an ally. Right. So, the seventh fleet gets sent in to just sit in the Taiwan Strait to not let any side go to war. We're just going to sit here and stop an invasion from either direction. Ah, that's mm. probably, probably. Best.
0: Now, when, when Cam and I were, were, were obviously knees deep into the uh, Korean War right now, and we were trying, we've been asking ourselves this, and we've um, done it numerous times is like the United States was just. They were just convinced, or they had convinced themselves, that Moscow was calling the shots, and, uh, which, of <laughs> course, as far as we know, wasn't true. But right bef- before the uh, Korean War breaks out, there is a treaty of friendship, alliance, and mutual assistance between communist China and USSR. Um, and uh, like you were saying, or somebody was saying, uh, China's building up forces on the mainland the, with the idea— of going over to Formosa. And so um, I think uh, maybe because of that alliance, I'm not sure, but the Americans just don't really see what's happening in reality on the ground uh, in Korea. And so, yeah, you have this entire messed up thing. And like you said, Truman's ready to let it go, and suddenly it becomes the center of his world because of this war that's burst forth on the uh, Korean Peninsula, and it's just something he's got to deal with.
1: Well, I, th- I think there was – <sighs> I can't remember who it was now. I think it was Kissinger or someone who was in China speaking to one of the ambassadors there mm-hmm. uh, for the uh, CCP. In fact, it might, might not have been in China. They might have met in Russia. Anyway, and he said, you know, what, you know what, what's going on with Taiwan? <clears throat> and they had a lot of stuff they still needed to sort out on the mainland. Right. So he sort of thought about this and said, yeah, I suppose we could do without Taiwan for 100 years. trying to imply that they are this ancient culture. They've been there for thousands of years and that they see timescales as much larger. Right. Because in a very similar meeting, someone asked him, what do you think are the final implications of the French Revolution? And this was in like 1950s, 1960s. And the guy was like, Mm. "Um, it's too early to tell. (laughs) (laughs) Was that Zhou Lie? That sounds like Zhou
0: Lie, but I'm not I mean, sure.
1: It, it, uh, basically, the Chinese going, look, yeah. you think about things in terms of <laughs> decades, possibly even a century or two. We think about millennia. Yeah. We see the long game. Yeah. Wow. wow. And it was, in fact, yeah. the Korean War that allowed Chiang Kai-shek's son, uh, Xiang Jingguo, to become fully embraced with the CIA and form a, a, a lasting relationship. If not friendship, mm-hmm. that helped them for years to come. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the U.S. started aiding Taiwan during the, the Korean War, and they're like, okay, we're going to send you money and supplies mm-hmm. and advisors to help you build up your infrastructure. And they got mm-hmm. on average. Now remember, they also had war in Korea. They got on average a hundred million a year. Wow, from back, the USA back then. That's a lot of money. And this, yeah, go. This went all the way up until like 1963 when it was eventually stopped.
2: So sort huge of mm, mm.
1: amounts of money pumped into Taiwan. It's, it's one of the reasons why they managed to build up and are now a very productive um, island compared to other places because right. they've had so much support. And also at that time, they were spending something like 12% of Taiwan's GDP on the military. Of course. Now, I've looked this up. To put that in perspective, in 2011 – the USA was spending 12.4% on the military mm-hmm. and in 2020 they only spent about 8%. Mm. And if if you I I've looked at this set of graphs showing the percentage spent on war and how much money it is and the two lines very quickly depart from each other because although the USA keeps spending less and less of the GDP on military right the amount of money in the country with inflation and everything makes it look like they're spending millions and millions and millions more, which Ah, they are. Right. It's a smaller percentage. Gotcha. Relatively speaking. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Shang Jingguo all up in investigation and research and, um, you know, secrecy and stuff in his agencies. Right. It's like, okay, I'm going to invite the CIA in. I'm going to almost give them free reign in Taiwan. And at one point they had is, I think over 600 CIA agents on Taiwan. Oh, my God. Did you need that but, Yeah. This is when we returned to the two Kuomintang military divisions that were left in Yunnan province. Oh. They had been messing around with the Chinese, with the, the CCP, but eventually they had been pushed out of Yunnan province and had had to cross the border and hide in Burma. Wow. And Jinguo put the CIA directly in contact with them. So the CIA used them to gain military uh, and... Um, uh, military recon and uh, information about China, you know, through little secret missions, mm-hmm. as well as sabotage missions and uh, raids. Mm. Mm. But then there's also the fact of how did these two military groups survive? The division, how did they finance themselves? Yeah. Well, in Burma, they'd started trafficking in opium and heroin. Mm. And so, with mm. the CIA being connected to them, the CIA bought straight into that. And started smuggling warm mm. and dung drugs, <laughs> being supplied by them. This is <coughs>
2: the the Golden Triangle, and we, we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about uh, Vietnam, I think, and also in our War and Drug series. But mm. uh, yeah, the CIA's involvement
1: in the Golden Triangle is fascinating. Yeah, well, well this this relationship is. Was uh, one of the main starts of it and it like you said it intensified during the vietnam war and during the vietnam war they also had lots of cia agents on taiwan operating from there right yeah so jingle was like i'm getting into bed with the cia because that puts me firmly in the hands of the usa and it will keep the communist party out
0: The think